The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. And we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for these glorious gifts that you have given. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you ran to a cross that was really ours. And you died a death that was not due to your sin, but ours. Thank you that you did that, not just willingly, but that you did that with the joy set before you, knowing that it would purchase us back, that it would reconcile us to now our Father. Thank you that, um, that your mercy abounds and that your heart is bigger than we could possibly understand because of our human condition and our circumstance. But I pray that you'd expand our mind as, uh, as Ephesians 3 says, that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that you would help us to understand the breadth, the height, the width, the depth of the love of God. And that in knowing your love for us, that we would live loved and that others around us would be loved by this glorious overflow that you do as you quench our desire to be, to be loved, to belong. Thank you that you purchased us and that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, that the precious blood of Christ was enough to, to ransom us back into your loving arms and into your presence that we're sealed with your spirit, that you've guaranteed your glorious return, Lord Jesus, and in the meanwhile, you're making us your bride, radiant and glorious. And you're doing that together, that we're, we're meant to be this woven together, knitted together body that is sensitive to your leadership, to, your, to the mind of Christ that you've planted in us by your spirit. Help us to follow you. Help us to honor you. Help us to joyfully and radically obey you. Because not because we have to, but because we desperately want to out of gratitude for the wonderful works that you've done for us. We're so grateful. Father, I pray you'd help your servant today to be, uh, to be forgotten so that you would be never forgotten and remembered. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that they'd be pleasing in your sight for you are our rock and, your, and our redeemer. And we give you praise in Jesus name. Amen. God's got a plan for your life, every intricate detail of, of your hair color, eye color, your, your lot. None of that is by mistake, all by design. It's in a fallen world, fallen context, so it's not ideal yet. But God's got a mission and a purpose, and he wants to use you to do it. And in the midst of that, he's healing you so you can be an instrument of healing. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Jesus was ultimately the one that came. He was He was. The healed, he, he was the great physician and he came and experienced our sickness so that we could be healed. Who does that? That's exactly what the spirit of God is beckoning each and every one of us to be. Agents that bring healing into other people's life at the risk of personal sickness and pain. And tragedy. I mean, did, did, did Jesus suffer so that we might be saved? 
And do we think that following him isn't going to have some moments of pain and suffering in order that others might be saved? We get to join Christ in this mission. We get to share in fellowship by sharing in his sufferings. All of this is true. So as we get to this passage, man, this is, this is so, so good. Um, look at just verses 1 through 4. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, right? Now, this guy is coming on. This is, this is not one of those things that we saw with John the Baptist where the, the, you know, they were sent out to ask, who are you? You know, Nicodemus is doing this on his own. Right, and that's why he's covering at the he's coming at the at the darkest hour in the covering of darkness. This is he's not he, he is making some statements about what we think, but he's he's got a personal he's got some personal things going on here, and he wants to know personally who you are. Like look look we 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 know you're from God. Nobody can do the signs that you're doing if he wasn't if God wasn't with him. Right? That's not happening. So I'm drawing a conclusion here. I think he's talking in plurality, but I think he is making a personal statement here. Like, I, I know you're from God. I've seen what you've done. Like, but you know what? I'm not sure what's going on here. And so can, and you know, here's another occasion where Jesus goes, um, I'm not going to really jump into this long conversation that you're introducing with this particular question. I'm just going to address what's really inside your heart because I can see that. And that's exactly what we read in John chapter 2, 23 to 25, when he basically says, you know, he was there for the Passover. He did a bunch of signs. People started to believe in him for what they wanted him to be. And then he said he didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in a person's heart. He didn't need anybody to, to give a testimony about that. He didn't need somebody to say, oh, this is my friend Joe. He's got the, the, the. Jesus knows. And there's, there's, such, there's such joy in that. You know, that, that Jesus, he's our good shepherd. He knows us by name. Like he knows me, right? And, 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 and the mystery of the grace of God is that he loves me at the same time. So it says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we. So he's speaking on, on, part of, uh, uh, on behalf of the Pharisees, right? He says, we, right? But I believe that this is a specific group of Pharisees that he kind of shares doctrinal beliefs with. This isn't those, those folks that are out there to kill him already. Uh, this, this guy's already being wooed. He's appointed unto eternal life. We see that because later on, he actually is one of two guys that bury Jesus in a, in a, in a manner that declares him king, okay, the king. Um, so it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Um, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I mean, I mean, so to some degree, you know, what he's saying is, uh, you know, you're, I want to believe that you're Messiah, but I'm struggling with the context here. Goes on in verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see it. He can, he doesn't even have a perception for it. Unless he is now, what this is saying is, you know, not being born from dust or dirt. All of us have that origin, right? Not being born of flesh, not being born, as it talks about in John chapter one, of uh, of a husband's will or a human will, but being born of God and being given the right to be called children of God. This is John chapter one, twelve and thirteen. But but like this is what he's referring to here, and he's talking about unless one is born again, he cannot see, this word is not only perceive, but he cannot realize, 
he cannot experience the kingdom of God. And listen, the kingdom of God is, anybody here experiencing the kingdom of God? Raise your hand if you're experiencing the kingdom of God. Why are you experiencing the kingdom of God? Somebody help me. Because the Holy Spirit is in me. Wherever God is, that's where heaven is. Whether it's the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, that's where heaven is, is wherever God abides. And so when he says the, the, the kingdom of God is in your midst, you know that, why that is? Because the spirit of God has now tabernacled you. You are a temple. You are a jar of clay, right? Just getting an idea of how frail we are. But by the surpassing glory of God's presence, he's now in us. So he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see it. He cannot realize it. He cannot perceive it. The kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, why? Now, why does Nicodemus say this in verse 4? Because he is not setting his mind on things above. He does not understand the scriptures. He doesn't get them. And because he doesn't, and, and listen, later on, Jesus is like bewildered, almost amazed, marvels. He's going, you are the teacher of Israel? He uses that terminology. And you do not understand these things? Boy, Israel's in trouble. Right? You're, you're the teacher, right? Imagine a classroom and a concept that has to be conveyed. And here we have a nation, and you're the teacher, and you are talking to me about physical things when, when all that really matters here and what I'm trying to convey to you is spiritual. But what, is, what, what, does, what does Nicodemus lack in order for the understanding of this to be real to him? The Holy Spirit. Remember, he says, when he comes, he will lead you into all truth. Remember, he says, he will be the counselor, the helper. What's he going to help us with? God's word, because he's the author. He's the author, right? So Nicodemus said to him, how can, it, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And be born? What is Revelation? Revelation talks about the second what? Birth, right? There is, there's a second birth. Right? You must be born again. The connotation there is both born again and born from above. This is the spiritual birth that doesn't come up from the dust but comes down from heaven. Right? And it must be done by water and the Spirit. We'll talk about that. Let's, let's look at verses 5 through 8. It says, And Jesus answered, uh, Tom, if you look up um, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. We're going to read that in just a second. Uh, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, and all of us have that experience, right? We all have, everybody have a belly button? Okay, good. That'd be scary. Um, uh, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, is alive. It's been brought back to life. That's what we lost in the garden, right? Um, Do not marvel that I say to you, Jesus says, you must be born again, right? There there is no other hope. There is no other approach. There is no other way. I am the truth and life that no one comes to the Father except through me. I have purchased you back through the work of the cross that you might experience life, that you might be born again. Um, Verse 7, do not marvel that that I've said these things to you or said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen, this is what I believe. Um, Remember last week we talked about like God knows us and we see how Jesus, when he's talking to fishermen, you know, he knows their heart, he knows their disposition, he, he knows their lot. He, he talks about being fishers of men. Like, he's relatable with everybody that he talks to. Why? Because he knows your heart. He knows your circumstances. He made you, <laughs> right? 
He made all things for him, by him, like he made it. He made you, right? He's fully aware of the seeds that were in Adam, and you are a byproduct of Adam. And so, like, he knows you. He knows your heart. He has this omniscience thing going on, and so he's aware of it all, right? And in the midst of that, he knows who's standing in front of him. He knows who's probably sitting in front of him. And he says to Nico, he says, look, guy, you have to understand that I'm fully aware of your heart. So let's reference some of these Old Testament passages that you have been teaching for years and you think you understand. And I believe he's referencing this passage. Listen to what this says. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Guys, do we we see the promise that is made here? He's talking about water and the spirit. This is what he's referenced. Go on, Tom. In In verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what what... How do we um, walk in his statutes and obey his, his precepts? By his spirit. Can we do it without his spirit? No, it's impossible, right? Impossible. And so he's put his spirit in us, not only to tabernacles, to make us witnesses, to, to see the Great Commission realized, but also to grow us up in the knowledge of who he is and conform us to his very image. It's a glorious work, but it's got to be done from the inside out. So why do we so often focus on external behaviors when really the issue is it's a belief issue that's going on? The reason that you often do things that you don't, like the Romans 7 issue, I do what I don't want to do even though what I do, like the doo-doo passage, like the the reason that we struggle with the, the behaviors that we have is because it's a belief issue. We see it in the, in the Sinai, right? And that's where we're going to move to. We see it in the Sinai that they were, listen, they were grumbling and complaining all the time. Man, we got this manna from heaven. They loved it for a season. And then it's like, I'm sick of this stuff. Like, we're not getting any water, any food. They start to grumble and complain. How does God feel about that? He is angry to the point of massive discipline here. Why is he so angry about this? Right? We're going to read this in just a moment because it's a betrayal of his character as, as, the, as the God who provides and sees and knows. It's, it's saying, I don't want what you're giving me. I want what I want. We had it better back in Egypt. Oh, really? Really? Okay. But guys, how often are we guilty of that same, that same statement or that same thought? Like, are you really better off before you were delivered from from sin and slavery? Are you really better off? Would you ever make that statement that they made? That now that you've been given his spirit to dwell among you in the tabernacle, very, very different than what we've got, <laughs> praise the Lord. But his presence was among them. And he's, they're saying, this isn't enough. And they grumbled and they complained. I want you to think about that as we kind of move through this. Because how, how often, you know, in, in um, jot this down, Philippians 2.14, it says, do everything without grumbling or arguing or complaining that you might shine like stars in the universe holding out for the word of life. That literally, you know that the whole thing about being the light of the world and shining for Jesus? That literally one of the ways that we shine is by not arguing or complaining. Does our world argue and complain? 
And so by just simply not doing those things, it's, a, it's an obedience to the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what God gets, angry to the point of massive consequences when, because it's a betrayal of his, of his character, his provision, right? No one can be born again without the Spirit, right? So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. This piece here is so rich. It's very simply this, is that you don't know where the Spirit comes from, its origin. You don't know where it's going. Um, and the whole point is, is that's the way it is with those that are indwelled with the Spirit, is that we no longer move according to our will and whim. We don't move at our pace. Guys, if you are, if you are a confessed believer of Jesus Christ, you are commissioned in God's word to be controlled by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And if you have any reference for that, you know that the flesh leads down a very dark path. And it's very destructive to your relationships, right? And God has bigger and better plans for you. That, and, and that is all wrapped up in this. Don't say that you are... This is what the scripture says. Don't say that you're a child of God and you don't follow the Spirit. Because, look, the Spirit will, will prod and provoke and beckon and move and set, set timelines and, and paces in our life. You know that it's, it's interesting, whether it be the Greek or the Hebrew, so whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the word wind and the word spirit are the same. Isn't that interesting? That the wind kind of like, what's interesting about the wind is you don't see the wind, you just see the effects of the wind. Right? And it's the same thing. We're marked by our fruit. Right? But it's not our fruit. It's the fruit of the, of the Spirit. Right? So unless we are spiritually born from above, uh, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You'll never experience forgiveness, reconciliation with God, experience life in His presence, and it goes on and on and on. Because it is the Spirit, like the wind, that causes us to be born again, we cannot look to ourselves or anything else to be saved. Listen to uh, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? What was keeping Nicodemus from understanding Jesus' statement here? That's very much more, like if you're, if you're a spirit and dwelt believer here this morning, then you know, you, you, you kind of have an understanding of what's going on here. But for, for Nicodemus, this was very foreign to him. This was very hard for him to understand. And what kept him from understanding this? He was looking at things from an earthly perspective. God is beckoning us perpetually to look at things from his perspective, to share his heart, to share his attitude, to, to share his, his paradigm. Guys, you're, we are, we're all born in this world into a broken paradigm that's been fallen for almost 7,000 years right? I mean, how bad has it gotten, right? But we, you know, there's been bad seasons. I mean, look, the, the people that were in Noah's day, it says um, every thought was only evil all the time. So that was pretty bad, right? Um, so, I mean, but here's the thing. We're, we're, le- we're born into a absolutely wrecked paradigm that is totally solicits the flesh to a destructive pattern. And, and some of those things, you're not, you, you just think that they're fine. They're good. And, and, and just so I can like unpack that, as you've grown up in the Lord, haven't you realized that there were things that you just didn't have a problem with before that now you, you don't want to be a part of anymore? Because that's the, the holiness factor that's being, that's being done by God's Spirit in you. And so we're being weaned of the world and being set apart to Him. I must decrease that He might, might increase. Like it is this being, it's, it's called holiness, set apart, right? But, but we're still meant to be in the world, just not of it. 
And so the, the challenge here is that God is weaning us to his perspective, to his attitude, to his truth. You know what his reality is? The truth. That's his reality. And he wants us to be indoctrinated by it. In, in, Philippians, in John chapter 15, verse 3, it says we are washed by the word, right? Like, so the word basically, you know, people say, oh, you guys, you Christians, you're all brainwashed. I'm like, hallelujah, yes, I am. I am washed by the word, and I, I, don't, I need my brain to be washed, right? I need to be washed into a, a sanctified understanding of what truth and life really looks like because this, this, this paradigm's broken. And so it's about embracing his reality. But that means that we got to start thinking the way Jesus thinks. And it's very different than we think. And the beauty of that is, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, we've been in the spirit, we've been given the mind of Christ. But are we, are we submitting to that mindset? Or are we submitting to our, our flesh and a worldly mindset? Are we subscribing to that? Because we know that uh, in Revelations 3, God says, if you got one foot in the world and you got one foot in, in which you believe to be in the kingdom, that makes me sick and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Guys, I, I, we're not going to pull any punches here at Faith Fellowship. We're going to tell you what God's word says. Because Jesus was straight up, right? He was raw and he was real. And that's what it's meant to be. Like, otherwise, we, get, we, you know, we start to say, well, that's okay and this is okay. No, it's not. God gets to determine what's okay, right? He does. He gets to decide that. So here, here we find Nicodemus, and guess what? He just he doesn't know what's okay. He doesn't understand that this paradigm, uh, this spiritual paradigm, doesn't work in his heavenly thinking. It just doesn't work. So uh, John chapter three goes on in verses ten and eleven and says, Jesus answered him, "Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak." Now, why is Jesus? Listen to this. Jesus says, "We speak of what we know." And bear witness of what we have seen. Now, is he just being, is that just a statement of plurality, like in general? Or look what he goes on to say. But you do not receive our testimony. So who's the we that Jesus is talking about? Right? It's God. Right? It's God himself and those that would be his mouthpiece like the prophets. Right? Listen, Nicodemus had a ton of testimony about the way and the will of God. He knew what was coming that this is going to be a new heart and a new spirit. He knew that this was going to be a work of a suffering servant, right? If he looked at the scriptures, but the thing that Israel lacked is they didn't have the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit to lead them into truth. They didn't have the helper. And Jesus was there. And listen, here's the deal. Jesus shows up on the scene and he is the embodiment of truth. He's literally God's word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? I am the way the truth, right? I mean, God's word literally came to show us what God's word is meant to look like in practical terms and how we're meant to live it out, right? That's the wisdom of God. He comes and shows us what it's supposed to look like, and and he's at complete odds with the Pharisees. Why? Because they're locked in on the physical earthly paradigm, and they want a military messiah. They want a political deliverer, and God says, I got bigger plans for you. I love you too much to do that. Do we see it? And God's by his spirit is beckoning us, beckoning us to a paradigm that, that, that doesn't subscribe to the American dream. In fact, I think it's at odds with it. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Later on, John chapter four, we'll get to there next few weeks. Um, he says the same thing to the woman at the well. 
we, right? You Samaritans, but us, you know, we, same, same, same type of connotation. See, you teach Israel and you do not understand this, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says the problem if, is you are not believing reliable testimony about us. And unlike these folks, um, I'm going to point back to John chapter 1, verses 12. It says, but to all who have received him, who believed his name, to all who have received him and believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Moving on, John 3, verse 12, it says, if, you, if, I, if I have told you earthly things you, and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And basically what he's referring to there is he's, I've told you about what the new life looks like here. How in the world are you going to understand it up there if you don't get it here? Right? So he's just saying, man, you, you, you're, you, you need to shift to my perspective here. Basically, Jesus says, I can explain to you no better. You want to understand, but your unbelief stands in the way. Isn't that rich? Really, what was keeping him from getting it is he wasn't believing Jesus to be who he was based on what it says in John chapter 1, verse 12. And then verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man later in John, so clearly he's talking about himself here, right? And, and basically what he's saying is, if you're going to get the understanding that you're desperate for here, it's got to be someone that's come from that culture, that's come from heaven, and I'm, I'm from heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm just the guy for you. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're talking, how many of you have had a conversation with somebody that you're trying to share the gospel with? You're trying to share this truth, and you know, it, it, to you it's power, because uh, it's the gospel, but to them it's foolishness because, you know, their eyes are veiled. And, and we get that because we were once there too, right? But, but here's the deal. Here's Jesus trying to have a conversation with somebody. They're so locked into the physical. And Jesus, you, you ever felt this conversation happen? You ever had this type of a conversation where they're just locked into the, to the, to their own paradigm? Like they don't have any other paradigm to operate out of. And so what does Jesus do? Go, hey, listen, come back when you, uh, when you get saved. We'll talk. He doesn't do that, right? You know what he does? He shares the gospel in his terms. Now, let me ask you a question, and then I'm going to read this, and we're going to wrap up. So in order to reach somebody, Paul said something like this. He said, in order to, be, to, to reach this group, I became like this group, in order to be, that some might be saved, right? So do so you think Jesus is different than that? Is, did Jesus become like us in order to reach us, to die for us, and to save us, right? Is that not an example to you and I? So here's a guy whose passion, who's, who's sincere in his pursuit of God. And what do you think his paradigm is wrapped up in? The Old Testament, right? Wrapped up. That's, where, that's his connotation. That's his reference point. And so Jesus knows his heart, his mindset, and he goes right there. Now, look, it's kind of weird that Jesus would point out this obscure story about a bronze snake in the desert when these Israelites were getting bit by snakes. God says, throw a bronze snake on a pole, Moses, and if they look at it, they'll live, right? Now, you think, man, I I don't know if you've come across that Deuteronomy 21 passage in some point in your life reading that. God bless you. And, and you, um, And you're like, man, this is really weird. Do you know that Jesus takes this obscure moment in his in israel's history and he completely wraps it up in the gospel here so i want you to hear what this is saying in light of this context because this is what jesus is getting at so i'm going to move to listen to what this says before i read out i just want to say this john three thirty six says this whoever believes in the son has eternal life 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. That's the condition we're born into this life. The wrath of God is being revealed against sin. And we're born with sinful natures and we're wrapped up in that. And God sent a rescue mission with his son and he invites you back into a personal relationship with him by accepting him, believing on him, believing he is, setting your eyes upon him, lifting your, your, your life and your thoughts and your, and your, and your gaze to him. Um, okay, so verses 14, 15. Listen to what this says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When Jesus is talking about being lifted up, what's he referring to? The cross. But it's not just the cross. He's referring to his death, his, his burial, his resurrection, and his glorification. Right? Because what brought about this serpent thing is that, yes, there was death, but through this, this provision of God, God provided a way for people, for the poison that came to them through these serpents, that I'll just read in just a moment, for that to be extracted so that they might live. Similar to what Paul experienced uh, on the island of, no, it's not Papyrus or Cyprus, it's Malta, right? Okay, so listen to what this says. This is, this is Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It says, from Mount Hermon, now context here, they've, they've, they've been in the Sinai, they've now moved throughout the Sinai, they're no longer at the foot of, of, uh, of the mountain of God, they're, this is Mount Horeb, or Mount Horeb. this is on the, the precipice of going, going into Edom, um, so they have, they've had their, their fill of, uh, of the, 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 the manna in the desert, and, uh, and they're just trudging through the desert, and, uh, and they're, they're, just, they're, they're, they're in a, a place where they're kind of fed up with God's provision. So um, from Mount Horeb, they set out by the way of the Red Sea and to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Have you ever been impatient on the way? Okay, number five, uh, verse five, it says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, his servant. It says, why, and this is what they were saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Is that why God brought them up? So are they believing the truth or a lie? Right? I mean, that's, that's important that we understand the why. When God declares the why, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life, right? So, I mean, that's not why God brought them out. He brought them out to, up to bring them to the promised land, right? That's why he brought them out. And so here they're believing that, that Egypt is better than where we're at or where we're going. Guys, listen, he, we're, this isn't heaven yet. And trust me, there might be moments that feel like heaven, but it is a billion times better, a trillion gazillion, right? And this is in hell because you might get tastes and fragments and mo- moments that you believe is hell, but hell is a billion, trillion, gazillion times worse than this. And we are like, we are just like the Israelites. We have been delivered from slavery to sin and selfishness, and we have passed through the Red Sea baptism, and we've heard from God's word, the commandments, and now we're marching through the desert of life, and it is dry, and it's difficult, but we are these burning bushes that are consumed with the Almighty God, the, the, the consuming fire, but we're not consumed because our sin has been atoned for, but we're moving through a desert experience. This is not heaven, right? And, and we have a tendency at times to be going, God, is this what I'm supposed to get? I mean, is this what you promised? Like, right now, you're not enough, God. Your provision isn't good enough, God. 
I mean, just in case we, we, we struggle with that type of mentality, God gives us a picture of how he feels about that. Listen to what this says. For there is no, this is their continued, their continued complaint. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless manna food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. I don't know, that seems pretty serious, right? And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So what's the conclusion we draw about God's kind of, I mean, what we have to understand is because it seems a bit severe for some complaining, right? Right? But, but it is a, it's an assault against God's provision and his character and his fatherhood, his, his shepherdness, right? And then in verse 7 it says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned! We're sorry. This sounds like a, a similar story throughout the nation of Israel's history. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Hey, Moses, pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. Now, is the serpents the problem? Right? How often are we saying, God, take this. This is the problem. Take this. Take this person out of my life. Take this circumstance out of my life. What's the problem? It's my heart. It's my desires. That's what James says, right? It says, because um, the serpents aren't the problem. What do they really need the Lord to take away? Guys, this is, where we're, this is where we wrap. This is it. What do they really need God to take away? Their hearts. They, they, these ungrateful hearts have to go because how dare, I mean, do we understand? We want God to take all kinds of things away, but what really needs to be taken away is this, this deceptive heart. What, and, and you might say, well, I'm a Christian and I still feel so. Yes. Do you know what we need to do? Submit to the Spirit because the Spirit continues to want to sanctify that heart. He still wants to remove that heart, of st- that, those, those, those remnants, not, not just, just the things that come into that heart from the sinful nature still. He wants to set that heart apart for him. So listen, it wasn't that they needed the serpents to go. Their, their ungrateful hearts were the problem. So Moses prayed for the people, and I believe that this is an example, so should we, right? When people are asking for this stuff to be taken away and this stuff to be taken away and this problem to go away, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that maybe God put that problem there for a reason. Maybe he's looking to sanctify you through that problem. Maybe he's authored that problem and he's got a, he's got a glorious plan in it. And, and maybe what we should be praying for others is, God, would you help to change their heart and would you use me sacrificially to do it? And then verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Let's point to Jesus. Right? Because, guys, you're going, what? I mean, we're in the Sinai here, Colin. Did you get the, 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 the covenant mixed up here? The, 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 the... No. Guys, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every promise is yes in Christ. It all ends with Jesus. It all points to him. It all clarifies his ministry, his mission, his messiahship. It all clarifies. And what's going on here is this, the bronze serpent is a picture of Jesus. That if we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, like that's the only one that can cure this sick heart. Right? Because what happened at the fall? We got bit by a serpent. All of us did in Adam. 
right? We got bit by a serpent and there's poison in our heart. And the only way that poison gets extracted is as we look at Christ. And he, because look, these hearts can't be fixed. They need to be replaced. And he's the only one that can do it. And here's the good news. He's willing and he's able. And, and this is what he's asking. Like, do you see the parallel here? All he's saying is, you know, you got these serpent bites and you're sick with the poison of the serpents and you're dying. Well, look to the serpent. And isn't it interesting that God said, put a serpent on a stick? And isn't it interesting if you look at it, that's a wooden stick. Let me, let me hang my, my son on a wooden cross. And if you look, at, if you look unto him, do you think, you think that, that, isn't it curious to us that there was a, that there was a, that there was a, um, there was a criminal on a cross that looked to him and believed who he was? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guys, isn't, this is exactly what's going on here. This is what's being pointed to. This is why Jesus brings it up. He's like, listen, Nicodemus, we could sit here and talk all day long and you're locked into the physical and I'm locked into the spiritual, but let's get to the heart of the matter. You need to look to me. And you need to look at me. And it's not just the cross. Yeah, it's not just the, the sun hanging on a stick. Because listen, what, was, what, did that, what did those serpents cause? They caused, it says God brought a cur- curse, right? How is the curse of humanity's sin quenched? Only by the work of a son being held up on a cross and mankind looking unto him for salvation. How did, how did, the, uh, how did the serpent bite get, get fixed? right? Man, and it's interesting too, God put a serpent on a stick. You know why? Because we need to realize that it's our sin that put us here. And he's the only one that can fix that. He's the only one that can fix that. It says, as the Lord said, where are we at? Um, Make the fiery serpent uh, uh, and set it on a pole. And that's a wooden pole if you look into that. And everyone who is bitten, how many are bitten by the curse of the fall and poisoned? All of humanity. Without divine intervention, they will die. And when he sees it, right? That's what it says in the passage. When he sees it, or him, we can say now, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a wooden pole. And if the serpent bit, uh, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Guys, let me let me just let me just close with this. I don't God knows your heart inside and out. He knows your situation. He knows the dark secrets of your past and Jesus came and to demonstrate the Father's own love and he died in your place. And he knows he knows how sick you are. You you need to know how sick you are. Jesus said I did not come for the healthy but the sick. I did not come for sinners. I mean for for the righteous but for sinners. And basically what he was saying was I didn't come for those who think they're righteous or think they're healthy. I came for those that acknowledge their unrighteousness and their sickness and know how desperately they need it. Listen, Israel came to a place where they were no longer in a mode of worrying about the food. They were going to die. And guys, I think so often, and please don't miss this, I think so often we get hung up on, I don't have this, and what about this? When the bigger issue is, there are people dying and going to hell. There's a greater mission than your portfolio and the stuff that's going on in your life. And God wants you to shift your gaze to him and his mission. And he will take, he said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things I will add unto you. Right? Listen, look to Jesus. 
Look to him. Acknowledge him. Allow him. Accept him for who he says he is. And let him save you. And put his spirit in you. And begin this glorious work of showing you what life feels like, looks like. And it's not circumstantial. It's an inside-out work. And we start to shine for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness that leads to repentance. Thank you for just being the glorious God you are. Help us to be marked by gratitude and not complaining and arguing so that we might shine like stars in the universe holding out to the word of life. Help us to honor you with our lives and not just our our fickle intentions. Let us give you everything we are because you gave us everything you are and help us to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.